Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. Hi, Cherise here again. If you're just tuning in to this series of bonus content, you may want to go back and check out day one of this special podcast covering our time at this year's AIA Conference on Architecture in San Francisco, California. If you've already listened to day one, thanks for coming back. In this episode, two of the three ladies from She Builds podcast, Jessica Rogers and Lizzie Rar, speak with Sarah Collada from Disrupt Magazine and Disrupt Symposium. They have an insightful conversation about women in leadership in the AEC industry. Nikita Reed, host of Tangible Remnants, speaks with John Templeton, who explores a hidden history of California, including contributions of African Americans to the state, untold stories of Black billionaires, Black women warriors, and the extensive Afro-American Freedom Trail. I have another round of illuminating conversations to find out what you need to know about various building products. On day two, I speak with reps from Carlisle, a leading supplier of innovative building envelope products and solutions, Carboline, a global manufacturer of coatings, linings, and fireproofing products, and Dero, a bike parking products manufacturer. Closing out day two, Demetrius, host of Spaces podcast, is joined by Patrick Chopson, co-founder and chief product officer of Cove Tool, a web-based software for carbon energy cost analysis in architecture and engineering. They discuss the state of the climate and how the financial risk is now spurring sustainability efforts. But to kick off the day, I'll throw it back to Mark LePage and Demetrius Lynch, co-founders of Gable Media to open the day of recording once again. Enjoy. Hello. Thank you for coming back, everybody. This is Gable Media live, live recording on the expo floor of A23. Uh, architecture conference for the AIA. Exciting time this week here with my co-host, co-founder, Mark R. LePage. Hello, hello. Mark, this has been a crazy two days. Yeah, it feels like a week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're both like exhausted already. How has the week been for you? It's been good. I mean, the whole time zone change coming from the East Coast to the West Coast certainly has been something to get used to. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's been exciting. We're sitting under the big red A here at the RCAT booth. Uh, our great partners at RCAT have been so supportive of us throughout the years. And so it's been great to be able to 
to uh, take over part of their booth here and, and uh, tell some stories, share some ideas. Um, the expo has been amazing. Yeah. You know, th for the past four or five years, I've been coming to these things, except, you know, except for the pandemic <laughs> break. And uh, this has been the biggest in a long time. So yeah. it's, it's great to see the architects are back. I think last year was sort of a transition from the, the break to some architects not so sure about coming back to a to an expo to this year i think everybody's all in and we're we're here and doing it yeah definitely this has been a uh, by far the i think i've only been to three so far but this is by far the biggest that i've experienced it's yeah. a little overwhelming it is it's, it's there's i don't know if it's possible to see it all <laughs> yeah right? you definitely can't do all the seminars right because it's, it's, there's multiple tracks but even the expo it would take a week to, yeah. to hit every booth and actually spend some time at, the, at each booth. So, yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So uh, yesterday, we were here yesterday, uh, 12 to 4. We'll be here today, 12 to 4. Uh, at the end of the day, we teased a little, uh, a little bit of what we're working on with cable media. Uh, and I can't remember how much I gave away. You didn't reveal it. Okay. So uh, as of this week, we rolled out a brand new membership platform, which I think I did mention that part of it. And for those that have signed up so far, have a uh, have realized that they have one of the a big perk of being a part of the member, um, especially at this point, is uh, Gable Media is now a approved AIA CES provider. Right. Uh, so we have our own continuing education track. Uh, it's super unique. You have an actual podcast feed that you can subscribe to and listen to all the Gable Media shows and then just click a link, take a test, and quickly get your, uh, your credit. We report it for you. It's super easy, super, super simple. Um, I tried it out and I love it. I, I think it's probably the most easy way to to get your continuing education credits yeah no definitely no easier way because you're already listening to these great podcasts right this is not continuing education content yeah. that we created to be continuing education content this is our regular fantastic content from our members and uh and it just it it uh is approved by aia for for credit and yeah. so you just listen to your favorite shows take a test get credit yeah um, yeah, so I really enjoy it. And we have a few of our shows here with us this week. Uh, Gable, Gable Media members, uh, Tangible Remnants, Entre Architect, Context and Clarity, uh, Spaces for myself. Unstruct was here yesterday. Uh, and then we have the ladies of She Builds, which will be up next here Coming shortly. Um, and they will be having a conversation, uh, that will uh, they'll touch on a few things about the show, and then they have a guest that they'll I'll let them introduce. But um, we have a long day, um, a long entertaining day with uh, content from <laughs> beginning to end. So, like I said, she builds. Uh, then we have after them tangible remnants with Nikita Reed. Uh, then we have a few. Sharice uh, will be coming back up uh, for the detailed podcast. Uh, and she's going to be chatting with a few companies um, that work with RCAT. And then uh, I'll close out with um, uh, Patrick Chopson from Cove Tool. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, so like before, they have a huge announcement, um, so we'll be chatting about that. Is he going to reveal it here on the podcast live? It actually went public like a few days ago. No, it didn't. He's doing it here live <laughs> on the podcast. No one knows what's happening over at Cove Tool until he talks to you. Yeah. We have the exclusive. Yeah. So, we could just announce that we have the exclusive. Okay, that works. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, looking forward for the rest of the day. It's going to be super entertaining. Um, is there a certain element of the day that you're looking forward to or anything for the rest of this trip? Yeah, well, I'm, I, last night we had the Entree Architect meetup, and so that was a lot of fun. You know, we went, we went to a local brewery and, and just hung out and had fun with each other and for you know, like 40, 50 people. Yeah, 40, 50 people showed up, and so that was exciting. It was, it was late. It was yeah. 9 <laughs> p.m. Pacific time, so Eastern time was, it was a late night. Yeah, and we uh, shut it down. And they kicked us out at the <laughs> end, right? So that's, that's become sort of our, our theme. Yeah. We'll show up at 9 and keep going until they tell us to go home. Yeah. And so that's been a great that's always every every year that's that's a lot of fun to to meet the community right that's an opportunity we see each other at the expo we see each other at some of the the uh seminars but that's an opportunity for us to all know that we're going to be in one place at the same time and and be able to disconnect and and sort of wind down from the conference yeah. so that's been really exciting i i'm really looking forward to to walking around the expo I haven't really had an opportunity to do that yet yeah and uh see some of the the you know, the innovative ideas and the new services and products that are here. I'm really looking forward to the tech row, you know, because there's a, a lot of new technology mm. that is coming to the, the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's exciting to see see what's happening. And so I'm excited to go over there and, and check it out. Yeah. All right. So I think we'll wind down for this this intro for, for today. Um, but again, we got she builds coming up uh, here in a second. So we're going to uh, turn this down for a second, get set up, and uh, have them on shortly. All right. We'll see you later. Thanks. All right. Well, okay. We're here. Yeah. We are here. Two-thirds of She Builds Podcast is live from the A23 Expo floor. Mm -hmm. oh, it's exciting not I to know. be recording in a closet. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> That's so true. Um, so, yeah, for those of you that don't know, my name is Jessica Rogers. I am based out of Miami, Florida, even though I'm here. Well, in San yeah. Francisco. I mean, that's where you live, right? Yeah. Uh, besides doing She Builds Podcast, I am the studio manager of a small firm in Miami, Florida. And I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Lizzie Rar. Yeah, I'm Lizzie Rar. I actually live in San Francisco, so not too far from home for me to travel. Um, yeah, I work at a small architecture firm up in Marin County. We do mostly residential, single-family residential, so... Um, but today we're here for our side hustle. Yes, our passion project. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, for She Builds Podcast. Uh, so some background on the show. Uh, we are a podcast. We're telling the untold stories of women in the AEC industry through history. And the way the show started... Uh, our third co-host couldn't join us, Nergidi Rivas. She's in Houston, Texas. 
we're missing her, but uh, it was her brainchild. Mm -hmm. She had, she was looking for this podcast, right? She loves history. She wanted to find a podcast about women in history and architecture and couldn't find it. So she's like pitching the idea to a friend of hers. And he was like, that sounds more like a limited series. Like, I don't know if you could make a whole show about that. And she's like, well, challenge accepted. Now I have to do it. And so she reached out to Jessica and I each and we separately, both, separately. Yeah. We just, we, yeah. <laughs> and we both said yes. And so, yeah, here we are. Here we are. Three years later, we've been doing this. Three years later. Yeah. And then what I would like to uh, give a shout out to is Mark and Demetrius. They've been great supporters of us since the beginning. Yeah. And through their support, we were able to be a part of Gable Media. Yeah. Um, which has been amazing. It has opened so many doors, hence why we're here. Yeah. Um, through them, we've got to have amazing experiences, meeting several people. We're here at the RCAP booth. Mm-hmm. We're here at conference getting to meet the rest of our Gable Media family. Yeah, for the first time for, in person. For the first time in person, uh, like Sharice. Uh, from detailed podcasts mm-hmm. it's great it's great i love that we're finally getting to meet people irl yeah it's um, been really good um yeah we're just excited to share more about the show and meet more people like jessica was saying so and the fact that we're at conference so the other part of our show is we tell the untold stories but we also have a segment where we call the karaoke yeah. So Lizzie, you have a good. I, that was actually your brainchild. Like, I, like, <laughs> I think I had the brainchild, like the idea of what of, like, I wanted. Yeah, what giving. We, what did you say? Like giving them their flowers while they're still alive, alive to, to smell them. Exactly. Yeah. But you came up with the actual term. Or, yeah. Or like found the term. That, well, because I was like, I, I feel like of the three of us, I remember my architectural history probably the most. Yes. Yeah. And so. <laughs> <laughs> I was just remembering the caryatid was the, you know, the stone column shaped like a woman in Greek architecture. And so the idea is that the caryatid is a woman who's alive, working today, who ties into the historical woman of the episode, but yeah. who's holding up the profession just like a caryatid does the roof of a Greek style building. Right. Exactly. So yep. that's what makes attending conference so cool, because we are basically witnessing these living legends in our minds um we're getting to meet them we're getting to hear them speak so for example we're on day two but day one keynote was barbara booza mm-hmm. who was the character of our episode 62 lady ruth shellhorn ruth shellhorn so the connection between the both of them is that they both designed theme parks well for disney specifically for, yeah. yeah yeah ruth shellhorn was a landscape architect who helped design the pathways of disneyland in anaheim so yeah so just having that ability to like see and hear these karyotids in person has Mm -hmm. been great after us um nikita reed from tangible remnants is gonna be doing her live broadcasting and she was also a karyotid of Mm -hmm. our of our show and she's friend we've been on her show she's amazing but her work on historic preservation was the key in to one of our episodes that we did on a woman that did historic preservation as well. So yeah. to have to have these connections is so great. And that's what makes being a part of this so much more fun. I know we've just had and all the connections we're making, too, with like listeners or um, 
other people that we've met over the last day or so is like we met the people from Coffee Sketch at the Entree yes. Architect meetup last night. Michiganders. Uh, Michiganders. Fellow Michiganders, which is like <laughs> always a way to my heart. You know, if somebody comes up and shows me their hand and where they're from, I'm like obviously endeared to them. So yes. we're learning more than just ladies. We're learning about Michigan's geography. Like what? <laughs> that's crazy. Um, yeah. So that's good. I So if you are around... We'd yeah, come find us. Come find us. Meeting the guys from the coffee, the coffee sketch podcast was great. But also listening or meeting people that are listeners of our show, yeah, is always great. That like, was really fun last yeah, night. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we record in our closets. <laughs> we only see the three of our faces on screen. Yeah. So besides like our parents that listen to the show, it's great to like meet other people outside of our family. Yeah. Who like recognize the show and yeah. our fans. So yeah. yeah, it's been really good. It's been really good. Um, and then, you know, we're here at conference and they talk about a lot of things that resonate with some of the themes and discussions from our show. Yeah. That's been really interesting. You know, we've, uh, some of the sessions that Lizzie and I have attended has been focused on like women leadership and um, women entrepreneurs and all things like that that we've dedicated seasons to on our show talking yeah. about it. And the one that I think resonated with us from I think it was the CEO Lakeisha Woods mentioned it during her opening keynote was about alternative careers. Mm -hmm. Um, we had a season of like the non-architects yeah, and how they contributed to architecture, which is very much in line with the alternative career paths. Mm -hmm. I mean, I myself consider myself in an alternative career space. Yeah. So it was good to see that conversation come up at conference. Mm -hmm. And what I love about now that we're here is that we got to meet a lot of amazing people, a lot of amazing women. Mm -hmm. One being someone that we're actually going to bring in a charrette of short of sorts since we, you know, don't typically do a lot of interviews, but we're really excited to have Sarah Colata from Disrupt Magazine and Disrupt Symposium. Uh, she herself identifies as an alternative uh, career type person. <laughs> so I would like to bring you on and introduce yourself. Tell us what you do. Yeah. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I love your project and I love Gable Media. And it's just exciting to, well, first and foremost, share drinks with everyone last night. That yes. was wonderful. And share ideas and inspirations from this two days of, yeah. of the conference. And also join here to talk a little bit about projects and women and leadership. Yeah, exactly. Tell us like a little bit about your path and how you ended up where you are, you know, and in this alternative path. Sure. So I am an architect. Mm -hmm. I graduated from Central St. Martins in London. And shortly after graduation, I went to China to work for an architectural practice. And I didn't really quite like the experience. Mm -hmm. I always considered design to be more creative than just the CAD. But unfortunately, when you're an intern, they put you on the, yeah, you know, on the 2D, 3D yeah. stuff. And uh, there were some things that I didn't like generally about the office culture and that specific experience. And I wanted to do something a little bit more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And humanitarian architecture called me. So mm -hmm. I decided to get a job at a local charity in Guatemala. Okay. 
So I moved from China to Guatemala and uh, started working there. Mm -hmm. They were doing some projects, school projects, but building a lot with concrete. And uh, at the time, you know, raising money in America and spending it on building materials. Most of the building suppliers there were actually American owned. So the economy would circulate back to America, therefore not Instead really... of Guatemala. Yeah, not yeah. really impacting, you know, economically the local community. Well, an alternative then would be to hire local people and maybe build with natural materials mm -hmm. around. Um, Adobe is very popular. Yeah. They also do yeah. a lot of stone buildings and, you know, and then really the craftsmen can earn that income, right? Yeah. So um, I was trying to introduce these ideas, but being young, you know, they kind of overlooked it. And at that point, I just got very frustrated. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it all on my own. So mm -hmm. I started to fundraise for projects and found obviously a lot of need and we started to build. Six years on, I, I hit about, um, I hit 30 and I, I have built projects in Guatemala and run the charity. We also picked up some private projects. It was a really great experience mm -hmm. in my 20s, but I did find myself broke and, uh, and that was hard. It really was. Yeah. And at that time, you know, what do you do? Coming back to Europe, trying to get a job in a normal architecture firm with a portfolio full of mud houses and bamboo <laughs> buildings. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it just made me feel really on the outside and not belonging. And uh, I needed to think quickly on my feet. And I thought, you know what, I am an entrepreneur. I, I have that sort of boldness and courage to yeah. start projects and just do things that uh, that I believe in and follow my heart. And But I don't have the skills. So I started um, to study business and marketing, came to America and... That really was the beginning of the path I'm on today, mm. which um, made me realize that, you know, we don't learn business in school. No, no. And so, um, so yeah, so, uh, you know, how do you deal with that? And, uh, and I realized that my experience wasn't, you know, unique. A lot of people that start practices struggle and uh, I could only imagine how, you know, the struggle and how great that is in San Francisco, London or any other metropolis. Yeah. So um, when Corona hit, I decided to start a blog and I was writing about these topics of business of architecture, what I found from business marketing, etc. And then I started a podcast as well, Architecture Talk Tank, where we interview people about business, mm -hmm. architects that run companies, as well as uh, really the greater AEC industry yeah. professionals um, about marketing and uh, a lot of people that help architects develop businesses and business skills. And so we covered um, a lot of topics now on the third season as well, doing this two years. Um, but last year, I decided to put together an event and that was the Swap Symposium. Mm -hmm. We did it virtually because it was still kind of in the end of pandemic yeah. time, yeah. but you know. Um, so we did that and it was very successful. We had a really great show up rate and we actually collaborated with huge offices as well. Gensler, SOM, uh, you know, we had really just incredible firms join us and some people as well that were the movers and the shakers of um, the metaverse industry, yeah. which this topic is massive last year. Um, now AI took over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that is one of the big topics yeah, yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so we, uh, we did that and actually now it's literally a year in and we did seven events, six virtual um, and one physical. And actually we do have a woman edition, 8th of March, which was a full day stream and we had 15 speakers and wow. that was really beautiful. I, I, I absolutely love this project. Yeah. So yeah, this is me. Wow. That sounds so cool. I know. And I feel like 
I just see there's a lot of connections, I feel like, mm-hmm. with your story and like some of the story and the stories we tell in our show about these women. Like, I think none of these are new things that people are going through, right? Like right, you were saying. Right. And like, I think a lot of people find themselves frustrated with the traditional path in architecture and things mm-hmm. like that. Or, and especially women, like we find that a lot on our show, whether that's because like historically they had a hard time getting into the profession because they're women mm-hmm. or other factors and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so they'll choose to go out on their own and start their own thing because no one else is like giving them those opportunities, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's how we started our podcast. It's, yeah. We right. saw something, we saw a gap. Right. Mm-hmm. And we we wanted to do something about it. Yeah, exactly. And we started our podcast during the corona pandemic. Too. Yeah, too. So, yeah, exactly. And, and I love it, actually, because the pandemic, you know, putting us sort of enclosed in our houses forced us to think outside of the box and yes. find time yeah. for things that maybe were in a pipeline or maybe connected to passion. Yeah. And we yeah. also needed to connect with one another. And I think that, you know, meeting on a weekly or whatever frequency yeah. with yeah. people you're developing relationships with and chatting about things you're interested in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. And, yeah. you know, and that's being, like life giving in its own way. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like it gave us something to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Except for baking bread. Yeah. Everybody yeah. else is doing <laughs> Um, There was something that you mentioned, too, about uh, your time in Guatemala, building Mm -hmm. mud architecture. That was really cool because we talked on our show about a lady that did mud architecture. Yeah. uh, So Rivati Kamati in uh, India, she was our episode 56 lady, and she had a real heart for um, promoting mud architecture because like similar to what you were saying. And she was like, I think people associate mud architecture with um, like, poverty. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Impoverished communities. And like that, it's sort of like a lesser material. And she was mm-hmm. like, no mud architecture can be really beautiful and sustainable and create really awesome projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, she did a lot of like, you know, hotels and like mm-hmm. higher end, uh, buildings that used mud Amazing. and those materials yeah. and really promoted that. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I totally, when you were talking about your story, I was like, oh, that's like a yeah. perfect connection to her. And so. since you have a lot of um, people listening that are passionate about history, you know, I just want to add a few cents to that because um, Industrial Revolution happened about a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. And before that, literally every single building was built with natural materials. Then yeah. we mm-hmm. discovered steel and concrete and started to create building regulations to build with that because obviously there was a much more dangerous way to build. And so we needed right to follow some regulations but ever since they developed those regulations they called everything else alternative and that is just yeah. a funny twist on it like how yeah. is this alternative <laughs> when and it's the know, original what's original and yeah. then also really today because the knowledge has died because we mm. didn't put efforts to preserve that yeah, knowledge yeah. it yeah. actually is alternative because we no longer know how to do it properly right. and so part of what we were doing with tribe lab in guatemala was actually going to these indigenous communities and finding people that still still, still remembered knew, yeah yes. how to build and like getting that knowledge from them to then pass on. Yeah, Yeah. and it was a very humbling experience for the architects because you come in and you say, okay, well, our role is just to put that better layer, right? To put the design in. But really the the technique came from the local men um, that still knew. Um, You know, it's really funny. When you walk around these villages today, you'll find 
you know, people are over 50, 60 year old, that's that no, but the youth doesn't anymore. They do know how to build with concrete building, but they won't. So they're not passing it on either. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's really dying around the world, that knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, this is why we have our show. Yeah. For that reason, to keep these stories going. Right. Trying to spread these messages as far as we can, because Mm. at the end, it's enriching the profession. It's moving it forward, even Mm -hmm. if it is looking back. Mm-hmm. Which I think is the beauty of our show. Absolutely. Like. Yeah. Looking at the past so that we can move forward mm-hmm. in all aspects. Like we tell the stories of women, but we're also talking about the architecture, the mechanics of yeah. the built environment and those elements. So I think it's beautiful the work that you were doing. Yeah. And I really think, you know, um, coming back to, you know, sort of topics that we talk a lot about mm-hmm. now entrepreneurship, women leadership, yes. yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. business. It's really all about what it comes down to is passion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as an architect, there's surely something for everyone that we're passionate about. We can identify that gap, right? Mm -hmm. That we feel Mm -hmm. we can fill somehow. And for me, my early days, me, it was very much that story of preserving the indigenous Mm -hmm. ways of building. Today, mm-hmm. it's it's talking about following your heart and passion and yeah. It, but but in one way or another, no matter even when that changes and it doesn't always die out, you still care about things you cared about before. Right. Yeah. And I just think that you know the the key of it is to follow your heart. Yeah. Well, and I think too, what you were saying is like finding your passion and that kind of thing. In one of the sessions we were at yesterday, the women at the helm, they were taught like it was about women in leadership and talking about like. Well, someone said, like, what's your superpower or like, Mm. what's your value add and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing? Because I do think and I think that also relates back to like alternative pathways in architecture, too, because Mm -hmm. like your strength might not be in the typical pathway, but like you can still add to the profession by like going a different way and like, yeah, figuring out what you have Mm -hmm. to offer and like what you're passionate about and how you can use that to push yeah. the profession forward. And actually, this is super interesting that you said that because something that I'm starting to realize now, I'm 35, mm-hmm. actually 36. Oh my God. And three <laughs> days ago, I turned 36. Oh, happy, happy birthday. birthday. Thank you. <laughs> I still didn't click in, obviously. <laughs> so much going on here. It takes a while. Yeah. Anyway, 36. Um, <laughs> but I'm realizing that um, sometimes when you try to like design your life through your head, mm-hmm. which is not following your passion, but trying mm. to be logical about what you're doing, right? Um, it ends up being like a design thing which maybe you just won't connect with Mm -hmm. and what I realized is you know hey I'm not doing architecture right now Mm -hmm. I'm doing media for Mm -hmm. architects I'm still in the same community I still I'm still following that path of architecture I'm very passionate committed to this community but actually my role changed and Mm -hmm. I always find it really weird when people address me as like an alternative path because I, I still identify with being an architect. It's just that I right. don't practice that today. And that's interesting. And why? Because somehow I follow that passion. And yeah. then that sort of title changed along the way. But I don't think that's an issue as long as you are fulfilled. And so, yeah, that's something important. And I think that's been a great lesson for me. And I love sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Girlfriend, me and you are like right here. I was yeah, gonna say, Jessica exactly. also, I feel like, is... Because I love this industry. I love yeah. design. Sorry. I love everything about it. But I've always thought of like, I'm not so much interested in the practice of architecture, but of the architect. Yeah. And, yeah, how, yeah. and how do we like work with that? How do we do that? So media is definitely something that um, I've been interested in. Our podcast is, I guess, 
it's helped me a lot to find what it was that mm-hmm. I like to do and like what are the things that I am passionate about and because of the show we were able to talk about things that were important to us in the industry things that we wanted to see different mm-hmm. um diversity and inclusion is one that mm-hmm. we are very passionate about not just learning about american european traditional architecture but all kinds of architecture that's why when we had that story about mud architecture it was like yes finally we yeah. we're talking about this and it's alternative careers i i understand what you're saying i mean we had a whole season where we just talked about non-architects because mm-hmm. what other architects fail to realize is that there's so many people that have influenced our industry and mm-hmm. our profession that had nothing to do We're with trained traditionally right. as architects mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so and i hope that helps promote that like architecture can be very welcoming mm-hmm. it's collaborative. Like, collaborative i think that's kind of like i just always think about florence nightingale and like mm-hmm. you know she's so well known for being a nurse but like she it influenced hospital design in such a dramatic way yeah that like things that are normal for healthcare architecture today are because of her mm-hmm. um yeah. and yeah like she wasn't uh, trained as an architect yeah. but bringing in that knowledge from other people mm-hmm. and like making connections um is super important and you know what's really encouraging as well is that as architects we learn certain skills mm-hmm. that actually can translate very well to other things yes. and mm-hmm. so when you break it down for example what we do is we will get a brief right from a client whatever it is and we we'll sit down and start envisioning and creating these big visions and then everything else is just a system that we need to implement to bring that vision to life that's yeah. exactly what it's like to create a business mm-hmm. it's exactly what it's like and it's very funny that actually we have such a wound in the industry around being able to be entrepreneurial yeah. and more mm-hmm. business focused because in fact if you compare business studies it's just a set of systems that you need to go through right in order mm-hmm. to set this entity mm-hmm. uh, right and then the skills same, translate what? but people aren't like incredibly using them that but way but i think also our belief system around the fact that we're not good at it right mm-hmm. yeah it stops us from acknowledging that if we just allowed ourselves we would be probably great at it and so that's also a very interesting thing mm-hmm. that kind of touches on that topic of out of architecture or mm-hmm. anything to do with with alternative careers because we are actually well skilled to do a lot of things yeah well that's true yeah and i think that's true too because in some ways they do teach us like as an architect you sort of have to be a generalist right like you have to because in order to design different types of buildings you have to learn about that to, you know so you end up kind of having a wide knowledge about a variety of different buildings and uses and different careers like who's using the space right right um but i feel like that doesn't get exactly what you were saying like they don't talk about it in the sense of like how to use your skills outside of like traditional architecture and design and that kind of thing is that what the name of your um symposium and magazine comes from disrupt do you know what it's really interesting when i was doing the first edition mm-hmm. i thought i'm going to call it something different i can't even remember now it was some long long name and then <laughs> an abbreviation of that and then um you know i invited all these amazing people who had 25 speakers on the first edition yeah so there was just a lot of interviews and i was speaking to everyone on zoom and then recording that and creating articles on the back of mm-hmm. these interviews and everything so it's like really deep dived and people kept mentioning the word disruptive and disrupt mm-hmm. a lot in this and i just kept 
in all my notes, I kept highlighting that somehow. Yeah. And eventually I thought, wow, this really stands out. And yeah. that's kind of how it happened. I didn't even realize that there were, that this word was used a lot already mm -hmm. through well, content creation and architecture mm -hmm. and other things. But, um, but I really connect with it and I, I like how people react to it too. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think we are doing something disruptive and people, you know, have always this feedback, like we do really need this right now. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and they do want to be disruptors, even yesterday we were walking down the street and we actually ran the red lights walking not in the car okay. oh, and, okay, uh, yeah, and we said we said hey we're disruptors it's fine <laughs> it's, on it's, it's on brand we're just staying on brand <laughs> we're staying on brand <laughs> i love it that's so great yeah the the term disrupt right i feel like you get one or two reactions the ones that are like for it mm -hmm. the ones that are like the ones that are risk averse that are like, ooh, I don't know yeah. if we want to do that. But we are all about the disruption, changing, mm -hmm, yeah. changing the game. We do it through history and storytelling. Yeah. Um, so, I mean. Yeah, because I think for us, like mm -hmm. a goal of ours is to, you know, eventually maybe the podcast becomes some sort of in education spheres. I think that's, that's right. kind of one of the places that we're looking to maybe be disruptive is. Right. Um, because I think part of the reason too, that we wanted to start this podcast is like our architectural history classes and things like that. They didn't teach us anything about these women and that oh, kind no, of thing, yeah. you know? And so I'm still in the dark, honestly. I was going to yeah. ask you like, okay, you went to architecture school. I assume you took architectural history classes. Did you learn about any women or no, could you name any styles, um, style, architectural styles and stuff like this, but never mm -hmm. so okay. much about women. I mean, of course we had, um, and back in the day, Zahadid mm -hmm. was still alive, but we had right. those influences of those sort of star architects that yeah. we yeah. compared a lot, the concepts and the programming mm -hmm. and the, mm -hmm. well, you know, contextual, <laughs> all these things that like mean something to us, but nothing to anyone outside yeah. of our industry. And there was always a name attached and, you know, we studied the style of Ram House and mm -hmm. Zaha and this and that. but. I honestly, um, outside of historical names such as the Corbusier, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't know stories of women. And yeah. I think what you guys are doing is amazing also for the reason that it's a way for us to relax listening to this. This isn't yes. another way to be, you know, a great person or show mm -hmm. up in the world or learn, learn, learn. It's more like, oh, I'm not just like kick back, have a tea, and yes. listen to this podcast. Well, yeah. we tried to spill the tea. Yes. Yeah. Girl, we could tell you about Le Cabousier, but we don't have time. Because oh, we have like probably like five to ten episodes of how Le Cabousier ain't crap. And there was actually a woman behind a lot of his most notable projects. Yeah. But we're not going to get into that because... <laughs> I just wish I had like a cup to make yes. a noise with. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, so yeah, we had all... So yes. I'm loving this conversation. I'm glad that we get to learn a little bit more about what you've learned and or the gaps, because one of the gaps that you just mentioned and that we've talked about earlier is that architects don't know the business side of handling that. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes it so interesting, the work that you do yeah. about trying to teach other architects and designers and mm -hmm. just learning within ourselves because you know she builds podcasts it is a business as well so yeah. we're learning along the way exactly yeah, sure. and that's great you know mm -hmm. the, like 
I feel like life is business. I mean, don't you sell yourself <laughs> to friendships and boyfriends and I mean, all the time, right? Just yeah, the way you true. show up in the world is the constant sale. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Um, I think what's important is that we give some percentage, I say 10, that's why my rule, but percentage to actually constantly grow. If you mm. don't grow, you do slowly decline. And I think especially if you have ambitions to be a good leader, even if you're already in a leadership role. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm interviewing a lot of um, older architects that um, have a lot to to teach us actually about the industry. Uh, Patrick McLeamy being one. In yeah. fact, mm -hmm. Build Smart is also the Gable Media yeah. podcast that you yeah. can guys check him out. Mm -hmm. But um, I've deep dived into this podcast and just so inspired by his um, authenticity and an ability mm -hmm. to actually say, you know, oh yeah, there were days when I was more on the aggressive side and I was a little bit full of myself. Mm -hmm. And then I did coaching with an executive um, coach, you know, and I've learned um, how to manage that. And therefore that led me to being promoted. And I love that because it's that humbleness mm -hmm, that yeah. you don't really get often. Yeah. Um, unless people get to that point to realize that, yeah, actually what made me a great person today is that I've grown and maybe yeah. I wasn't the best version of myself a few years back, but here I am today. And what I went through and it was really super interesting when you guys talked before um, when we were preparing for this podcast you mm -hmm. said you know we talk a lot about success but we never know how people got yes. there right yeah mm -hmm. how and I think it's by learning a lot mm -hmm. reading books listening yeah. to educational podcasts yeah. asking the right questions mm -hmm. and just wanting having that willingness and curiosity to grow yeah exactly like an openness to learn and like i mean that's what we hope that our listeners will take is you yeah. know like an openness to just sort of like maybe relearn about shandigar and like other historic projects and just yeah um yeah that's i think yeah exactly what you were saying mm -hmm. just like openness to curiosity mm -hmm. and to kind of reframing how you might be thinking about something and even self-awareness of yeah. how you are interacting with others. That's um, right. We were talking about before that like everything is so much about like how you're communicating. Like you can't be a good leader unless you're able to communicate well, mm -hmm. both with like clients or um, employees and that kind of thing. Cause otherwise like you won't be a good manager if you can't communicate your ideas and like yeah. listen to people yeah and actually speaking to that i went to one of the um lectures here mm -hmm. in the lecture room upstairs and they were talking to emotional intelligence mm -hmm. it's just an incredible training they yeah. picked up leaders um they would ask you know who's who's managing a practice right now yeah who's a principal who's a director people were raising their hands and like, come on stage and then put them through a really challenging wow. situation yeah like you know like here is this employee coming in offended because someone called them gay and it's like you know what do i do and i don't want to work here i don't want to work with this person screaming and shouting and this and they were really put on the spot on the stage in front of all like these how would you address and this? you know what it was interesting because they were reacting and actually i did find that there was a lot of in very good ways to get out of those situations i was impressed mm -hmm. by how people did yeah um but also it's a really great learning curve because you put out like if they're uncomfortable you're uncomfortable and then that really puts you mm. like, forces you to pay attention mm, yeah. and it was very impactful i actually learned a lot and connected with the person that ran it and uh yeah i hope actually to put him on the stage at this rap because that's exactly the type of training we need yeah yeah yes. Wow, that that's really intense. It and was also very and interesting. It was super very fun, actually, <laughs> because no, like it was, yeah, it was so managed such that obviously it was entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but very, I I really learned a lot. And in fact, I I did. I'm taking a mental note to go back and read a little bit more about emotional intelligence because I yeah. think that's yeah. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. And I think that we never should stop developing that no, intelligence. For sure. <laughs> that fruit <laughs> growing in that le- on that level in yeah. that respect. Mm. All right. So, Sarah, would you like to play a game? Oh, my God. Go on. <laughs> okay. Um, so, this is uh, similar to... Each at the end of each season, we do like a little wrap up, mm-hmm. and in our wrap up, we play a little game based on our ladies. Like, who would you rather, you know, go have tea with? Mm-hmm. Who would you rather go to a bar? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Who would you? So for today, we are gonna do a little game on who would you rather, but conference edition. Okay, I like that. Okay. So, who would you like to? See a keynote, mm-hmm. see a workshop, or go reception hopping, aka like bar hopping, like yeah. like last night. So those three categories, who would you choose? Um, your choices are Zaha Hadid. Uh, let's do current. So Barbara Buza, mm-hmm. and let's do Lily Reich, who is the. A uh, furniture designer of the Barcelona Pavilion. Okay, interesting. <laughs> it is hard. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, I had an opportunity to meet Zaha once. Shut up. So, AA, obviously, Architectural Association. Yeah. Right? Not the anonymous alcoholics, uh, <laughs> which would be hilarious. Not to be frankly. confused. <laughs> Not to be confused. Um, she obviously graduated that school and she used mm-hmm. to come kind of unannounced. But when she was there, obviously, the, the word would spread through London mm, architecture sure. groups very quickly. And I remember we got a message. We were at Central St. Martin's normally, like, at a lecture and we got a message that she's there at Architectural Association which is just down the road in Bedford Square and I actually like left half lecture and I was like ah. <laughs> some people came with me and we went in and it was just a very very small gathering and she was talking about drawing and she was pulling out some of her old drawings mm-hmm. and um oh, and uh and 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 showing us the ideas and kind of she said something along the lines of sometimes i draw and you know this drawing i like it but i can't really use it as a building right now so i put it in the shelf and wait and then when the right project comes along we use that and design that into a building oh that's really interesting that's really cool see hoarding works oh for that reason yes we should talk to julia morgan about that oh we don't have to Mm. Or that, but, you know, generally speaking, Zaha, I don't think she was the kindest person in the room. And I'm not sure if I would enjoy a cocktail with her so much. Okay. Maybe I would feel awkward. Um, interior design. Yeah. Mm. What was her name? The uh, Lily Reich. Lily Reich. Mm-hmm. She yes. would be cool. Barcelona I would go for that. Chair, yeah. Barcelona Pavilion. That is all hers. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I would do that. And I love the style. And I also think that... Um, well, interior designers, they kind of do something that a lot of architects don't like to do so much, the mm-hmm. detailing. Yeah. I really enjoy it because it makes the building really come alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually, I actually find myself following more interior designers and architects mm. on Instagram, for example, for that very same. matter. Yeah, same. So, um, so yeah, I think I would choose her. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Cool. Interesting. Okay. So I know that's the game of Would You Rather, but trivia. Do you know who was the first woman to design a museum in the United States? Oh, my God. I mean, not to give you the answer, but you were just talking about her. 
Ooh, really? Zaha. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ooh. The first woman to yeah. design a museum. Oh. Yeah, Zaha Hadid was the first woman to design a museum in the United States. She designed the Cincinnati Museum of Art mm-hmm. in Ohio. Oh, Which is it. crazy because Zaha, like, you got to meet her live. Yeah. Like, no, like, it's not that long ago. It's not that no. long ago. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Jessica, who would you choose? Uh, what would the choices were? Lecture? Like, either a keynote or a lecture or have a drink with. Okay, so I know Zaha is a diva, but, oh, well, actually, okay, Zaha, I'll do the lecture. Barbara, I feel like she'd be a good lecture. Right? I have been dying to meet Barbara Booza again in person, and I've been so <laughs> close to having that drink with her that I'm going to have that drink with her. That's right. Sounds good. I think that's going to come come to life. It's going to happen. We can help. And then I want a workshop with Lily Reich so mm-hmm. that we can get into those details. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to know about the book matching. I want to know about her work with marble. She used to do, like, a whole bunch of, like, fabrication mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I also, while I'm doing the workshop, I can get the tea on Mies van der Rohe because that's another oh, yeah. story. That's oh, a whole, yeah. We tell her For story. Sure. We have to mention this fool. I mean, yeah. person, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Lizzie, mm. why don't I ask you... Um, okay. This lady. Okay, so tea party, mm-hmm. professional luncheon, or after party rager. Which one are you going to and why? With which lady or like pick any lady to pick go? Any, yeah, pick any lady. Okay. Um, well, I think I would have to choose Emily Helen Butterfield. Okay. For the business luncheon because yes. she was she helped start the Detroit women's business leader group. I you forget, would be I interested forget the, in that episode, oh Sarah. Yes. Yeah, I forget, it was very fascinating. I forget the exact name of it, but um, she started yeah like a women's luncheon because at the time, um, like you know there were. Uh, Men had like luncheon clubs that they would go and like talk business at, and so she's like, "Well, we should have one for women." Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, and so she started one in Detroit, and it kind of became the model for like future uh, business clubs and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah. So I would do that with her, Dorothy Draper, for the tea party. Dorothy Draper was the richest little girl no, in the world. In the world. Yeah. When she, like, her father died and left her a bunch of money. Oh, wow. (laughs) She started, like, a business Mm -hmm. after that of interior design. Yeah. Yeah. She's an interior designer, and yeah. mm -hmm. I love this. Uh You actually get the type of money you don't have to do anything in your life with anymore, and you do actually choose to do something. Yeah. Yeah. You choose something that we're doing for life, you know? Yeah, exactly. Based out of New York. Mm -hmm. Oh, she was born in Tuxedo Park. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Wow. Which sounds exactly... Sounds fancy. Yeah. That yeah. the richest little girl in the world. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she would be good for tea parties because when you think of like New York uh, architecture mm-hmm. and uh, of residential architecture, how they have that like salon. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That was all Dorothy Draper. Mm-hmm. She was the one that like expanded so that she could have entertainment with her friends. Of her, hundreds of her closest friends could gather. <laughs> Like, think Great Gatsby style. Yes, you know? yes, oh, yeah. yes, of course. I'm right there. Yeah, <laughs> so a tea party, I'd go to that. A lot of teacup clinking. Yes, yes. 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 <laughs> While they spill the tea. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, oh, the rager. So who oh, would you rage with? 
Well, I think Aline Saarinen would be mm. great. She's like got all the media connections and stuff like that. So this is Aero Saarinen's second wife. And Perfect she was point. like, she basically started the profession of like architectural marketing, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because she was originally in media and like on TV and stuff like that, but then started help, help started to help promote his business That's once they were. What year was this? Mornas. This was like 70s. Wow. Yeah, the you 1970s. Know, what's really interesting about this is that in America, at some point around then, mm -hmm. it was illegal for architects to market. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Game change. What? Yeah. Yeah. Look it up. It's so crazy. was Aline the disruptor of the <laughs> Well, she was. So it sounds. Industry. That's why I asked for a year because I was absolutely gobsmacked when I found out about this. And I, it actually makes a lot of sense because if that's mm -hmm. the history of business of architecture, then how are we supposed to know how to market ourselves if yeah, historically... If, like we were never allowed we're, to. We were not yeah. allowed to. This is probably like the biggest epiphany because that's something that architects face. Mm -hmm. How to market themselves. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, that's one of the issues. Yeah. For sure. Mm -hmm. And that's why, because if we had to start like in the 70s, 80s or whatever. Well, we don't have a much a massive story, exactly. uh, history around it and experience for sure. Yeah. I'm telling mm -hmm. you, like we tell the stories of historic women and we're learning, but mm -hmm. we're yeah. learning so much more. We learn so much stuff. Like the other one that I always think of that blew my mind was, um, so Florence Knoll mm. is like... Uh, was basically the design force behind Knoll Furniture. It was like her oh, husband's she, company, but then when they got married, she came on as a partner. And she was the business leader brain yes, behind it. She was like mm -hmm. the, yeah, and she had all these connections. She was trained as an architect and was like, had been like sort of adopted by the Saarinans. Mm -hmm. So she had all these connections with architects and was um, instrumental in bringing them into design furniture for Knoll. So like the chairs that Saarinen and Harry Bertoya did, like that was through her connections. I love it. But the thing that always, and she like ran their interior design department because mm -hmm. they're also known for like their corporate interiors. And that was definitely like her brainchild. But she started doing like sample boards or like what she called like paste ups mm -hmm. of like, so putting like a rendering and then putting the materials around it because they were like very minimalist designs for the time. And so she was like, I feel like they won't understand like the type of fabric unless I put it on there. But, and like swatches, cause she got very into like bringing in textile designers. So like the reason we have swatches and like do material board, like that's, that was never a that's thing her. before okay. her. Can, oh my can we pause on that? Because, okay, where are we? In a, in a place that has all the swatches and materials. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, swatches. that's like literally what we're <laughs> our surrounding. Surrounded by. Swatches everywhere. Right? Okay, also, I wonder if Noel is here so we can tell them about themselves. About this <laughs> yeah. history. Tell them about it's themselves. Them. Yeah, this two episode. like, did you know? <laughs> Shout out. That it was, <laughs> do you know about Florence Noel? <laughs> Even though you're... Yeah, I, no, but I'm curious. I don't know if I've seen the no, uh, the no booth. If there I is one, think, yeah, I haven't seen anything. But we gotta see it, and then we gotta like it's tell so them big, to listen. You know, to <laughs> yeah, yeah. As we talk about them, but that was a great. I episode. think I might have gotten bought though, so I don't know. But like, but it's no something. It's like within the yeah, yeah. But but yeah, that's anyway. But that's the thing. Like things that you think are just totally standard mm -hmm. like and then we're finding out that these women were instrumental in that. So Incredible. it's really really fun. I love this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, so inspired. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Sarah, what's next for you in Disrupt? And yeah. 
Gosh. All that. What well, do you envision for the magazine? Let's start there. Yeah, we do actually want to go to print and everyone's making faces when I say it because <laughs> apparently magazines are not that trendy and it's not the best business to get into. But you know what? We want to build a community and it's very much about this idea of just having something that you can come out of an event with that you mm. can keep for yourself and it's so beautifully printed like a book. Yeah. And I really believe in that sort of thing where you can put it on the coffee table mm. and it looks good in your interior yeah. and on top of it you can learn about business and leadership from all these top leaders that are currently in different positions at this amazing farm so you know that's kind of the ambition there and we're going to distribute it um definitely within our own community mm -hmm. um but you know i'm open to to see where else this business can go yesterday i was talking to uh printers their book publishers um in mm -hmm. here oh yeah we'd, we'd love to do a book yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like putting it out there in the world if anyone's listening uh, yes <laughs> Well, they're there. You should talk to me. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. But yeah, no, I mean, let's see. Honestly, it's kind of my ambitions with visions and then it materializes. Sometimes mm -hmm. things fail. Sometimes they don't. But you got to try. You do. Yeah. You do. You and try. not take it personally, you know, at the right. end of the day. It's just, yeah, transitioning yeah. from one thing to another. They're projects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. see what sticks. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why we're here. You Absolutely. got Disrupt. We got our podcast. Mm -hmm. We're here live broadcasting. Yeah. Just trying things yeah. without trying a script and out of the closet. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been so great. This has been so fun. Yeah. So, uh, Sarah, where can people follow you and follow yeah. Yeah. your work? Pretty much anywhere. Sarah Colata, K-O-L-A-T-A, and Sarah without an H. Uh, pretty simple. LinkedIn's probably the best, but, you know, I do also have an Instagram and Facebook and connecting with the community on all these platforms. Nice. We are all about the connecting with the community. Yes. Mm -hmm. You can Absolutely. follow us at yeah. She Builds Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, She Builds Pod on Twitter, especially following us along during this AIA um, conference has been really fun. Yeah. Even though it's just the two of us, shout out to our Hongo Nerjidi who's not here. We miss you. But we're documenting everything mm -hmm. for her and for everyone and we want to just meet everybody and make these connections and learning about everything that the women around us are doing. Yes. Yeah. So we're so happy that you're here. Thank and you. And yeah. that we got to chat. Me. And that we got to meet outside of the DM. I know, exactly. <laughs> we talked on Instagram yeah. ages ago. I, yeah, yes, yeah. I saw I saw that. And yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. No it's, been that long. <laughs> it's been that long. <laughs> yes. But yeah, this has been great. This has been fun. Yeah, thank you so much for coming thank and you. chatting with us. Yes, yes and for playing our little game. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that was fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Any last thoughts, Jessica? Um. Well, why don't we pitch our uh, what we're working on mm. for the new season? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Uh, yeah. So we're working on season nine. Nine. Wow. Nine. Wow. Wild. Yes. Um, and the theme for this upcoming season. So, yeah, we do about 10 episodes every season. We like to kind of we give ourselves parameters by picking a theme. Right. So like that the women have to kind of fall under. Giving ourselves bumpers. Right. We can just go, they could go anywhere. anywhere. Um, but it's also fun because then we try to see like what connections we can find between the different stories of the women. Mm -hmm. um, and so this upcoming season is going to be um, inventors. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's pretty broad, but we'll, you know, we're excited to see kind of what, uh, 
what stories we come up with or yeah. find. So. so some of it is directly tied to the industry. So a lot of like uh, products that yeah. we use, like fire escapes, mm-hmm. invented by a woman, spoiler alert. Yep. And uh, another is the technology aspect as well. Mm-hmm. Women that have influenced code. Mm-hmm. Not like com- like building code. We're talking computer electronic code. So I wonder if uh, when we talk about the karyotids tied to that episode, if we'll bring in bring up things like AI and right. metaverse and absolutely all yeah. of that stuff. So that that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. we're in the research part of that. Yeah. But, yeah. That's what we have going on. <laughs> yeah. We're excited about it. So coming out end of summer. End of summer. So sometime August but. kind of time frame, but. Yeah. yeah, I mean, until then, people can check us out on the socials. Be mm-hmm. sure to check out Sarah and hers. Yeah. You know, while we disrupt this thing called the AEC industry <laughs> one way or another. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And this- yeah, email us, shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website. Um, Ooh, buy our merch. Yeah, we, we have merch on our website if you want to. Yeah. We're wearing. Swag out. Yeah. Yeah, see? We got our sweatshirt. I, I love the colors. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We got a water bottle. We got stickers if you're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're up on the floor, we got some stickers. So. Yep. Yeah. So thanks for having us. Yeah. 823 out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I am podcasting from the RCAP booth on the expo floor of architecture, or no, of the American Institute of Architects, A23 conference. Big shout out and thank you to Gable Media for making this happen and for RCAP for hosting us here. Um, it's been a great conference so far and it's been fun to be able to show podcasting uh, visibly <laughs> to so many architects in the profession. Usually when I'm podcasting, I am in a room by myself talking to someone um, over a computer virtually. And so being able to have people walking by, observing us podcasting, seeing what it's all about and demystifying it a little bit has been really fun. Uh, the conference so far has been amazing, somewhat overwhelming. The expo floor is massive this year. Um, and then, but the sessions are great. The keynotes have been awesome. Um, and just a lot of the reconnection. Like it's been fantastic to be able to see people in person again. I definitely get the vibe that people have been wanting to get out in public, see each other in person. It's been a couple years. There was this thing called the pandemic that happened. So I think people are very excited to be back. Um, so far, one of my favorite takeaways from the conference has been um, actually one of the sessions I went to this morning, which was the COAT Top 10 or just the COAT Forum, actually. And so being able to really learn more about the ways that architecture and sustainability and justice uh, and DEI and all that is interlapping has been interesting. And being able to have the conversations with other architects who are in the same space has been soul affirming, actually. And so um, I'm excited for all the new connections that I met or that I've made this week. One of them being the person who I get to have a great conversation with. And I'm sure I'm going to learn so much from. And so here we go. All right. Well, welcome back. I am coming to you live-ish from the 
expo floor at the American Institute of Architects A23 convention, and I am very excited to be doing this. Um, we were going to be doing a live stream, but I'm also glad that we're not because, you know, I like the voice side of it a little bit more than the video side. But I am very thrilled to be here uh, with someone who I just met this week and who I'm learning more about. Um, Mr. John Templeton. Hello, how are you? Thank I'm, you for joining the show. I'm doing well. Awesome. And so the story on how I met John um, is one of my colleagues, Sandra Little, she went on a tour that you gave on Tuesday, which was amazing. And she was like, Nikita, you have to meet this man. You need to have him on the podcast. You need to have the conversation. And so then we met at the Noma reception last night and the stars aligned. And I'm very grateful that you're here. Thank you. And so why don't we start with one of the things that I was most intrigued by. Um, so you are a reporter-ish. Let me not even make assumptions. Tell me more about the work that you're doing um, and how you would define yourself. I try not to. Fair. Uh, because um, what I've learned over my professional career is that you, you really don't get to choose what you have to do on a, on a given day. So, uh, in the course of any given day, I might be an investment banker, <laughs> uh, a historian, uh, economist, a uh, business journalist, uh, a manager, um, a construction foreman. Um, so, when people ask me, what do you do? I say, right. what do you need done? <laughs> I love it. And so then what got you into putting the tour together for the conference? Well, um, in 1991, mm -hmm. I was uh, working as a journalist mm -hmm. for the San Jose Mercury News, and I was assigned to look at the history of police brutality after the Rodney King beating. Okay. And while I was there, I found out that the San Fernando Valley was originally owned by black millionaires. Oh. Who had been the last two Mexican governors of Alta California. So that was pretty stunning to me. Wow. And I came back to San Francisco and found out uh, that the whole state was named for a black woman. So who's there? Say more about that. I won't. Okay. <laughs> um, and so then I got the rights to the art. Okay. And wound up doing a 400-page uh, full-color book on the history of African Americans in California up to uh, 1900. Okay. From 1500 to 1900. So then I did the. Um, Volume two from 1900 to 1950, and then volume three from 1950 up to about 2000. And then volume four mm -hmm. is a lesson plan called uh, The Black Queen, How African Americans Put California on the Map. Nice. So uh, in the course of doing the work, mm -hmm. uh, we realized that you can't describe this history to somebody verbally or even in writing. Okay. So in 1992, we started doing tours because the history is so unbelievable mm -hmm. that people have to see it for themselves. Right. And so we've been doing the California African American Freedom Trail tour for the last 30 years 
uh, and throughout the state, uh, and we've mapped 6,000 sites. Uh, it was peer-reviewed for the American uh, Historical Association in 2017. Wow. Uh, it's been endorsed by the State Historical Resources uh, Commission. And it's the most extensive historical record of any state in the country. Oh, my gosh. This is why I'm very glad to meet you. This is amazing. Yeah. And we, we will make sure to put links to that in the show notes for listeners yeah. who want to learn more. Yes. My goodness. And so then, um, and... As you've been doing the research and documenting the sites, getting the tours together, what have been some of your favorite finds or things that you've learned about? Well, um, once again, I don't like to tell people about it in advance <laughs> because um, the, the sociological issue mm -hmm. is that this history is visible. Mm -hmm. And it's in prominent places, mm -hmm. but nobody sees it. Right. So the mural of Queen Calafia, who's the black queen that California's named for, is in the state capitol. In the Senate Budget Committee hearing room, room 405, oh, in wow. the state capitol. And every year when the budget is being introduced, the TV cameras from all over the state are looking at hearings in this room. Wow. And so every year, people are looking at this mural, mm -hmm. you know, for months at a time. And nobody notices that there's this big mural of a black woman behind. Right. So the, 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 the sociological study has been, well, how is it that people can't, see history that's right in front of their faces. Right. And and so that's why we wind up doing the the fourth volume because we realize that in order to actually teach African American history, you actually have to unlearn what people think they already know. Absolutely. And so that's why I don't often just tell people stuff because it's like, well, they, they, they can't even absorb it because right. it's just completely 180 degrees different right. from everything they believe. Yeah, but it's great that you're out here doing advocacy to help people know about it because you don't know what you don't know. That's and right. So being able to access it, even for someone from, you know, I'm from Maryland. This is yeah. only my second time in San Francisco. Yes. And so I would have no idea about any of this yes. if I hadn't met you and if my colleague hadn't gone on the tour. So I'm yeah. so grateful that you're doing that work. Okay. That, that's amazing. And so then, what are, um, so I know you have the books and the volumes. Yes. Um, is there also websites or any sort of online information? Uh, well, CaliforniaBlackHistory.com okay. has the books, and our books are how we fund the uh, trail, uh, books and the tours. We also do a seven-day seven statewide tour. Oh. Where we start either start in L.A. or San Francisco and do a circle around the state. Because we have sites in all 58 counties. Okay. And so that's also, also sort of revolutionary because gotcha. we have very stereotypical views about what black history is. Right. So we don't think about black folks in the logging camps mm -hmm. near the Oregon border or as farm workers in the Imperial Valley. Coachella. 
that was the site of an all-black town. Oh, I did not know that. I, very few people know that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Los Angeles, the original founders of L.A., uh-huh. 26 of the 44 were black. Oh, wow. Uh, 60, 60% of the original founders of San Diego were black. That's astonishing. Yeah. So, and all this information is readily available. There you go. I just... But nobody knows it. Right. So, so we've actually been pretty careful stewards mm-hmm. of it because we want to make sure that people get the information in a way that allows them to advance and to uh, process it. Right. Because what it does is it threatens their foundation of reality. Yeah. Because California, um, I was having a discussion with my intellectual property lawyer this morning. Mm -hmm. And he says... uh, if you type in beautiful woman, right. you're going to get um, young, thin, white women. Right. And so I did that. And sure enough, I got 12 young, thin, white women. Mm-hmm. So, but in the 1500s, mm-hmm. black women were the icons for wealth and beauty. And so there's a whole genre of literature that uh, through the medieval period mm-hmm. that traces from uh, the voyage to Mecca. So one of the hats I wear is that I'm the the one to do a rule or the history advisor to the Songhai people. Huh. So I was appointed by the direct descendant of a Skia Muhammad. So Songhai was two and a half times the size of the United States. And Askiya Muhammad was, yeah, Mansa Musa mm-hmm. was the richest man in recorded history. Yep. So his net worth was $400 billion in current times. So mm-hmm. 80% of today's African Americans are descended from Songhai. Gotcha. And so uh, we have a dynasty that is as long as the Windsors in England. Uh, But more importantly, um, Africans occupied Europe Mm -hmm. from 1710 to 1490. Wow, that's way back. So that's 780 years. Yeah. So if if you compare that to the period since Columbus, that's 250 years longer. That's so so our perspective uh, can't just start in the 1600s. Right. But to understand African-American history and understand California history, mm-hmm. you got to uh, look back into that period. Yeah. And so the, the origin of Queen Calafia is the voyage of Mansa Musa to, uh, to Mecca in 1332 when he was named wise ruler or Khalifa, and he had a guard of, of women warriors. And so that image of black women warriors mm-hmm. associated with gold and wealth dominated the world for the next couple hundred years. Wow. 
And so, so the the narrative of La Serge de Esplandia, fifteen ten, comes from that real life history. So when you come to California, mm-hmm. the dominant architecture is called what? I mean, it's like Spanish style typically. Moorish. Moorish. Oh, actually, that's a good point. Moorish. Yes. And so you yeah. have all these little cute clues in history. Right. But you don't really understand. You don't understand what's going on. And that's so fascinating. And I love that you're talking about history more expansive because the way history books teach it, it seems like it's the Egyptians did something, the Incans did something, and then it was the Renaissance. Nothing else happened in between. (laughs) Well, if you compare, there's a website that does. basically longitudinal population around the world. Oh, interesting. Right? And so in the 1400s, the most populous place on Earth was what we now call Mexico. Okay. So the Aztecs were probably the most advanced civilization Mm -hmm. on the planet. Right. Right? So then your other population center is West Africa. Okay. Right? And you have population center in India, mm-hmm. and you have the Ming Dynasty in China. So, if you were looking from space and doing a comparison of the relative strength of civilizations, mm-hmm. you would probably put all all four of those plus the uh, Angkor Wat in Cambodia, just on the you know just looking at the size of the buildings yeah. and that sort of thing. You would put all those civilizations ahead of Western Europe. Gotcha. And so, um, so, so, so we never have a a true global view, right? Absolutely. What was going on all over the world? Because we've uh, condensed everything into one particular right language, right? Right. So, for instance, we only look at black history in the United States through English. Mm-hmm. But most of the United States was not under English rule. So the first encounters were usually by people who spoke Spanish mm-hmm. and French and Dutch. So all the records are typically in those languages. And so, the, yeah, we were just at, think about that. We were just in American Beach mm-hmm. in Florida for Memorial Day. So the first known Africans to land in what's now the United States came to Florida hmm. in 1508. Okay. So that's, that's 120 years before yeah. Jamestown. Hey. Um, the whole Atlantic coast was named Tierra de Esteban Gomez. Hmm. You know who Esteban Gomez is? I do not. Okay. He was the first you know, sailor from Europe to reach... What's now the United States? Columbus never got to the United States. He did not. Okay. <laughs> he absolutely Esteban did not. Esteban Gomez came and explored the entire Atlantic coast. Oh, wow. And so, as was the custom, right. they named the area after him. So, the whole Atlantic seaboard in the 1500s was named for a black sailor. This is why we talk. I'm, I'm, I am unlearning and learning so much right now. Yeah. I'm so grateful for this. So, so last night I was there with uh, the uh, architect who was one of the designers for the African Burial Ground. Mm-hmm. So if you go to the African Burial Ground in New York City, right. 
the first thing it shows you, the first panel, is how Esteban Gomez was the first to reach the, the, the mouth of the Hudson Bay. Wow. So New York City was so-called discovered right. by a black sailor, right? Wow. And then the first person to, to live there, who was not indigenous, mm-hmm. was Juan Rodriguez, who was also black. So this is completely different, but this is this is what's in the National Park Service, right? Right there, right in New York City. So just like California, right? The information is where it's supposed to be. It's just it's but not. But people don't, yeah, don't it's get it. Not common knowledge and not understood. And that's one of the things that I love about doing these podcasts, doing these conversations, is being to, being able to help a lot of that history be more visible, mm-hmm. like you're doing. Because even, um, so when I started the podcast, it was because I was hearing some people thinking that, well, black people and women of color, or black people, women, and people of color just haven't contributed really to the field of architecture. But it's like, hold on, we have so many existing buildings that prove that otherwise. We've always been here. Uh, the myth of white supremacy makes it seem like only straight white men have done anything of value in the country. And so being able to use architecture, history, preservation as a tool to help help people unlearn and learn new things on how it works is one of the things why I'm super excited to be doing. And so meeting you and learning more about your work, which I'm going to be diving into, is thrilling. Well, yeah, keep this in mind. Um, because um, Shanghai and the Congo, which is the other region that we were imported from were so advanced. I mean, Congo Empire had population of 10 million. Uh, it was a very advanced nation state. Uh, we were brought here for our skills in building, in metallurgy, and in architect, you know, in agriculture. Mm-hmm. So, um, every urban area east of the Mississippi prior to 1920, mm-hmm. the buildings were built largely by black labor force. Absolutely. Most universities, yeah. Good. Yeah. So, 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 and this was really before the, the profession right. of architecture really started after the Civil War. So, so historic buildings uh you know, particularly, you know, for instance, I did my family history. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family has been in Iredale County, North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, since 1750. Oh, wow. And we've continuously been free and property owners since the 1790 census. That's amazing. And, and somebody in my family has continuously been in business in Iredale County since the 1820 census. Gotcha. So I didn't know that until I actually went <laughs> back and, you know, I, right. just, I just assumed we'd been in slavery, right? But right. when I thought about it, I said, well, you know, you know, both my grandfathers had like 80 acre farms and everything. Oh, and wow. they, they, didn't, they didn't act like people who had been in slavery, gotcha. right? I mean, white people were deferential to them. Right. Right. Okay. And so when I actually did the history, it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense to me, right? <laughs> right. So in my book, Grandpa Jack's Secret, mm-hmm. so my grand, great-grandfathers, about four generations of them, were the heads of the largest uh, moonshining operation in Western North Carolina. 
And they kept it secret for like a hundred years. So I didn't even know about it until wow. I was 40 years old. And that's why I call it Grandpa Jack's Secret. So my brother said, did you know uh, Grandpa Jack was a bootleg? I said, Grandpa Jack, the Presbyterian elder? He said, yeah, that one. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the secrets of the elders. I know. Probably so many. They're probably also very grateful that YouTube and the various technology socials that exist now didn't exist back then. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. This is amazing. Um, all right. Well, as we are wrapping up a little bit, um, so I guess one of the things that I would also love to pick your brain about. So I know that you are uh, multi-passionate. You're doing a lot of things. Um, for students who are interested in learning more about any of the many hats that you wear, what are, what's just some advice you'd give for students who are looking to learn more about history or things like that? Well, we have a instructional network called Reunion. Okay. And we do four hours a day of instructional programming where we use the Secretary of Interior standards to actually present uh, history. And we've been doing it for 30 years. We've okay. never had a complaint. We've never had anybody try to ban us because by using the Secretary of Interior standards, by using public records, by avoiding interpretation, Mm -hmm. What we're doing is showing students how to find their own history. That's amazing. And so we basically are inviting students to do the same thing I did, okay, but not wait until they're 40 years old fair. to do it. <laughs> That's fair. So this year our project is to have all 8 million African American students to trace their ancestors back to the 1870 census. Interesting. Yeah. And so then does the reunion, I, I assume it teaches the students how to do that, what the tools yes. are. Okay. Yeah. And then is that a program mainly for California students? Or no, is it nationwide? Uh, okay. Nationwide. And we're actually uh, moving into the international realm as well this, this year because there are 80 countries that have a black majority. Oh. Wow. Yes. And all those countries have educational programming, a lot of it in English. So increasingly, you're going to be using that programming to, uh, you know, uh, teach American students about the world, you know, Yeah, which is them. so needed because one of the things that always bugged me, so, okay, I grew up in Northern Virginia, um, went to a high school in Fairfax County, mm -hmm. but it was still one of those things where, like, the what history books teach black students about black history is pitiful. And yes. so it's always needing to learn more on our own, through families, through other other means of learning about the history of black students, of black people in general. Yeah, the irony of these bans on black history was well they weren't teaching exactly. it anyway. <laughs> what are you banning? <laughs> exactly. That watered down. Oh, we just came here as slaves, and yeah, that's all. Like, like, no, oh, that's oh, not okay. it. Okay, you know, yeah. you know, and at, at some level, it's like, well, we don't need that stuff anyway. Right. <laughs> right. And so, it's great to know that there are other resources available, um, and that you're also doing it in a framework of um, using the Secretary of the Interior Standards, because that's also um, trying to get more Black people and people of color into the field of preservation to even know what the Secretary of the Interior Standards are and how to do the research, how to find more information. It's well, part, of, part of what we talk about in our lesson plan is that um, it really goes beyond black history. It's Absolutely. like, how do you know what's true? Right. Yeah. And, and, and we don't tell students how to figure out what's true. Okay. And so in the United States, the National Park Service determines what our history is. 
So what gets recorded, all of that. So so when you go to national parks and you look at the interpretation of the National Park Service does, it's almost 180 degrees different from what folks get taught Absolutely. either in schools or in movies. Mm-hmm. So it's like, right, you know. So so you don't have to be particularly revolutionary or anything like that. All you got to do is. <laughs> right. Look at the documentation that's there. Yeah. <laughs> the resources, the yeah. records. But that's why the public. And that's how you avoid debate because it's like, well, right. This is the Joint uh, Reconstruction Committee. They exactly. got a volume on every state, so there's no debate about what happened. Right. Exactly. They got a whole volume that describes everything that happened. Everybody came testified. Robert E. Lee testified. Jefferson Davis testified. So you got everybody right there. Right. It's like it's not my interpretation, but I said here, here's the documentation of what they said. Yeah, and you can you can come to your own conclusion about yes. you know if you know either the United States banned slavery in the Thirteenth Amendment or they did. Right. There you, know, you go. I mean, whether you believe it or not, right. that's, that's, that's in the Constitution. But now you know where to find the information. Yeah. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So then, um, all right, well, as we are wrapping up here from the expo floor of the uh, American Institute of Architects, A23, um, John, where can people find you uh, to learn more information? Well, my site is uh, blackmoney.com, uh, but I'm also the founder of the Journal of Black Innovation, National Black Business Month, so during August... I'm do, doing 31 Ways, 31 Days, and we have a program every night at 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. This year we're going to have African heads of state and cabinet ministers, some of the top African-American uh, financiers. And we're also announcing the uh, Sergeant Johnson National Museum of African-American Art oh, wow. in uh, San Francisco, which would be basically the West Coast counterpart to the uh, Museum on the Mall. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for all the work you're doing and for spending some time with me today on the floor. And for all the listeners, I hope you learned as much as I did, because this was mind-blowing, and I'm so excited that you're doing what you're doing. Okay. Thank Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Today, I am joined by Chris Kahn, Product Manager of Specialty Products and Sustainability at Carlisle Construction Materials. Chris, welcome. Thank you. How's Thank the, you for having me. How's the show going for you so far? It's going well so far. Yeah, we've got a lot of people stopping by, a lot of good questions asked, and a lot of good leads captured. So, yeah, doing that, well. All the goals, right? All the goals. Is it my imagination? It feels like crazy busy here. Yeah, the show's very big this year. A lot of vendors, a lot of people. So, yeah, it seems very busy. A lot of fun as well. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I was at three parties last night. Yeah, I was at a party. Got to pet some dogs today. Uh, Have you pet any dogs? Oh, got the dogs yesterday. I'm going back over there after this. Got to. I'm just going to lay down in the middle of the dog pit. So, tell me a little bit. Let's start with tell me a little bit about which products at Carlisle you represent. Me specifically, I am the product manager for specialty products and sustainability. So that encompasses uh, roof garden systems, as well as paver systems and leak detection systems. And I also help to manage uh, our sustainability kind of outreach initiatives. So advertising and marketing, uh, all of our sustainability efforts uh, from a corporate perspective. Nice. So that means that you're the person I could call when I have to write my most hated spec section, which is a vegetated roof section. 
Yeah, that's me. Yep. Oh, you are now my best friend. Just, yes, I just am. so you know that. Yep. I talk about it on my podcast all the time. That's the section I least like to write. Oh, they're the most fun to write. Well, they're the most fun for you now because I'm going to call you and have you write them for me. Sure. Okay, great. So one of the things on our podcast that, you know, is our goal is for somebody, for people who listen to learn something from us, not just hear about a pretty building or all the things that went right, um, but what things could we be doing better? <laughs> now that you talk about, I could spend all the time talking about vegetated roofs right now. But um, so my question is, for design professionals or construction professionals, what things do you see that we do that if we would stop doing, we would have a better design or a better installation? How could we improve specifying your products? Obviously, you can't tell me all the things because mm -hmm. there's always all the things. But what are the things you see over and over again that you wish we'd fix? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one of the big things that we see uh, very common is that architects tend to get in a uh, very set in their ways. Um, and so we see a lot of specifications that are written once, maybe a long time ago, uh, with products that maybe at the time were the most popular and, you know, maybe the most understood by the, the specifier and that architect. Um, but, you know, they never change or never evolve as new products come out that might, you know, might be able to address certain design issues that they may be having. Plus, not to mention, you know, all projects are different. They're all located in different locations. They're different heights, different uses, and that kind of thing. So I think it's very, um, it, it's, a, it's a big opportunity to, to look at specs individually per project um, and write them maybe in a way that, uh, you know, is well suited for that particular project. So that's one of the big things that we see. Uh, specifiers again they just get caught in their ways it's easy to just reuse specifications um, but I, I would really encourage people to kind of look at their specs and you know maybe consider products that might be new that might fit a real need for a, a particular project even though it might be going outside of your comfort zone right I would I would probably add to your advice also that architects could learn more about specs because all the spec writers are retiring so you have people writing your specs and aren't necessarily trained in spec writing. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, we see that as well. Um, so a lot of, lot of uh, older, the older generation is starting to kind of retire, and we're getting some some newer faces in. It's always exciting when we go out and we do speed dating events with architects and whatnot to uh, to kind of educate the newer generation. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, we need that. I know that when I. When I talked to product drafts, I said, please come do all your lunch and learns and AIA CEUs all over again because we do have a lot of young people coming in. Sure. And yeah, they absolutely. need to learn about your product. Mm -hmm. So what about during construction? What are some of the things you see happening on the job? And what what's like? is it the specif way specifications are written that's causing it or the way it's designed? Or what would you like us to know about construction and what we could do better? Yeah, I've been on the specification front. I think it's really important to it to ensure that you know there's a qualification section in your specifications that require an installer to not only be certified by the manufacturer that's providing the materials but also has a certain number of warranted projects under their belt so that can ensure that the installation is you know a quality installation that you're going to be getting on that project you know carlisle we we um, offer a or require all of our contractors to be certified um, 
you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to get a quality installation. So I think it's it's a it's very important to put in the the specifications that there's qualifications that these contractors are not only certified, but that they've got a certain number of quality installations under their belt. I think that's something that we can do. Um, you know, and you know, make sure that inspections are being performed, and also consider consultants on roofing projects. You know, the roof is very critical to the success of that building. You know, you have a leaky roof or a, a roof that's maybe not uh, designed properly to up uh, to resist wind uplift and those kind of things. Um, you know, it's it's going to be bad for everyone. So, you know, architects they need to know a little bit about everything, and a roofing consultant can really help to, you know, to to make sure that your your specification is accurate and that you know there's installation inspections that are occurring throughout that project. So it can really help act as quality control. Well, in, or a building science firm. Building science as well. <laughs> Which I happen to work for. So I had to sure. I work for RDH Building Science. And sure. so I had to throw that plug out there because I couldn't agree with everything you said more. Yeah. And that gets missed a lot. I see people slash and burn qualifications, mm -hmm. requirements, and it's like, what are you doing? Sure. We need to keep those. Yep. We see it all the time. So I think that's a big one on the, on the kind of the installation side. Great advice. I already take it, but now everybody else has it. <laughs> So tell me, what's the latest and greatest at Carlisle? The two big things that Carlisle has really been focused on over the last several years is innovation, new product innovation, as well as sustainability. So it's, it's very uh, central to everything we do. Uh, we're always looking at ways of, of innovating to create products that are easier to install and helps to kind of address that labor issue that we see in the industry. So our products, uh, for instance, we have a product called Rapid Lock, which is a Velcro secured roofing system. You know, it, it really takes out a lot of the guesswork uh, in terms of like adhesive application. There is no adhesive, so it's super easy. Um, things like that. So innovation is very core to what we do. Um, and then in that innovation, we also are really focused on sustainability as well. So we're always looking at products. Any new product has, has to have some aspect of sustainability built into it. So we're always looking at, you know, uh, increased recycled content, you know, longer lifespan, so on and so forth is what we've been really looking at. So those are two big things. On the sustainability front, we have to get materials back if we want to start incorporating post-consumer materials back into our materials, our new materials, creating that circularity. So we recently just launched a re recycling incentive program for our contractors. So. I know a lot of times for re-roofing systems, architects aren't involved so much because it's a re-roof application. But if an architect is involved in a re-roof application, make sure that you write in your spec uh, to for a qualification of having a supplier take back that material. You know, through a recycling program, it's very critical to um, you know sustainability in this in this industry. You know, I think roofing for so long has been viewed as kind of a anti-sustainability type of a, an industry. You know, those materials, they last for 20 years or so, 30 years, and then they're torn off and thrown right into a landfill. We got to do a better job of taking that back and incorporating those back into our new materials. Okay, so I'm just a little bit blown away right now by two different things you said. Number one, seriously, a roof attached with Velcro? Yes, it's called I, rapid lock. Yeah, I, I need to see. I've heard the term rapid lock, but I didn't realize. Yep, it's an exclusive I, CCM system. I yeah. need to see that. So, yep. I write roofing specs all the time. Mm -hmm. So we'll need to talk afterwards. Sure. 
um, in this sustainable, this recycling. Mm -hmm. I was not aware of that. Yeah, we're partnered with a company called Nationwide Foam Recycling. Um, and so they act as kind of the logistics support for taking back used membrane and insulation uh, from roof tear-offs. Uh, currently, those materials are being repurposed, um, but we're really working hard on trying to actually incorporate those materials back into new products. Uh, the problem with that is as you increase the recyclability of your materials, um, a lot of times that negatively affects the long-term performance. And so we don't want to, we don't want to detrimentally affect the, uh, performance of our systems by putting too much recycled content. So there's kind of a fine line there, but we're right. working on it. Well, I think that's outstanding. And I'm definitely going to want to hear, we always ha ask for a waste management plan, but knowing that there's a program where, where some of that stuff can go back mm -hmm. is really great. Chris? Thank you. Um, we happen to work in very similar, I write a lot of roofing sure. specs, so I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. I learned some new things, so I know everybody listening did, and I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you to RCAT, and uh, yeah, talk soon. Thanks. We, yes, we will. <laughs> Take care. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Um, I have here joining me right now, Kevin Twyford, Director of Commercial Fireproofing at Carboline. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I am pleased to have you. How's it going here at the AIA conference? It's actually going very, very well. So there's, there's a good, uh, uh, good group of people that uh, stopped by and, and good leads and, and I, it, it looks like uh, AIA and everything else is really moving forward with a lot of uh, uh, attendees. It it looks pretty busy to me yes, it this does. year. Like I think everybody after after COVID, everybody really wants to be together. They do because everybody seems really energized as well. That is true. That is true. They you really know, do going all day and and not looking to you know escape. So that's a good thing for everybody. That is true. So let's talk about Carboline. Let's start with, why don't you tell me about what products you represent? Carboline is part of RPM, which we're on the New York Stock Exchange for a Fortune 500 company. And so what we have is we're a coatings company. We have a fireproofing division. We have a rail division. We have a wastewater division. We have so many different divisions that we supply uh, coatings, fireproofing, uh, throughout all these different markets. And so we're based out of St. Louis. Uh, I handle just strictly uh, commercial fireproofing for Carboline. And we continue to grow year after year. So business is actually very well. So do you rep all of those lines? Or are you focused on fireproofing? I'm only focused on fireproofing, but we have other uh, directors in the same position as myself that handle other regions and other markets. Okay, so one of my um, fireproofing, <laughs> I, I have this thing I do at work that a lot of people don't do. I'm a spec writer, in mm -hmm. case you didn't know that. Um, fireproofing is one of those things that often gets put in the wrong place because the design team and their consultants don't coordinate very well. There's a whole list of these things. I have the whole list, but fireproofing is one of them. Talk to me a little bit about what Let's start with design professionals. What could design professionals be doing better in their documents 
so that we don't have problems with your products down the road. A lot of it is is figuring out where getting getting your sales rep involved or your manufacturer getting in them involved early enough. And a lot of times they don't, and and then the wrong product is up, uh, being spec and being applied in the wrong application. So you want to make sure you're picking the right applicate the right product for the right application. And so. Uh, there's certain guidelines that really need to happen, and, and a lot of it has to do with when is the product going to be applied, how is it going to be applied, you know, who's going to apply it. And so we have a we have a good certified uh, application program that we have that really tailors that that people really need to know uh, that we it's a life safety issue, and so. Uh, for, divine, uh, for, for designers and that, they really need to get us involved a little bit earlier, and I, I think that's where uh, the shortfall is a little bit. I preach, you have no idea how much I preach that. But number one, you manufacturers reps make my job a whole lot easier. I can't be an expert on every product. No. And I can call you in five minutes, get all the answers I need in, instead of two hours of trying to figure out what my answer is. That is true. So that's great advice. Do me a favor. There's a very specific reason for this question you don't know you're about to get. Tell our audience, where does fireproofing belong in the specifications? It should be, you, you have uh, in the 07800 is where the cementitious is. And 087123 is where the uh, uh, intermescent needs to be. Now where you really want to make sure that you have... Uh, good primers, you have good top coats, you have things that are that ties into the 9900s for your top coats for structural steel. You don't want just a regular top coat being applied over all these intermessages. So to all my lovely MEP engineers out there, I did, I, I worked for six and a half years for an MEP firm. Um, you don't specify fireproofing. You call your architect. <laughs> And work with them and have them put it in their fireproofing section. So that's a very good lesson. How about how about during construction? What could be done better during construction? So they've they've got the right product. Mm -hmm. What's happening in construction that maybe we could do something earlier in the documents to stop that? It, as far as challenges that are happening during construction with your your products that you wish everybody knew. The biggest thing is is is. You should be able to tailor your fireproofing around where your structural steel is, and what. And, and a lot of times, you have to make sure you get the right product for the right application. And the problem that we ha we have seen is people want a better finish, but expect the wrong product to give you that finish, and expect applicators to be a car finish applicator versus ah. a fireproofing applicator. So this is life safety. It's not. It's not. You know. Painting a Tesla car going down the road. We're not right. doing that. So, and so then there's heat on the applicator to try and get a finish they can't get from that product. That's correct. Oh, good point. Mm -hmm. I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. Again, I just learned something else today. Mm -hmm. So tell me what's new at Carboline. What's new at Carboline is, uh, you know, about uh, four years ago we we uh, built a full scale furnace where we can do our own fire test internally. It's fully uh, certified by Underwriters Laboratory. Wow. Intertech. And so we do all of our own internal fire tests uh, and 
it's all witnessed by UL, all witnessed by Intertech. So uh, those are those are your certifying bodies that you really want uh, to be witnessing the product. And then uh, uh, we continue coming up with new products. Uh, we're, we're looking at a, a new epoxy. We've got a new solvent base. We have a new water base. So, I mean, there's so many things in the hopper that we're doing uh, along with our uh, our spray fire resistive materials, which is our SR, S of RL. So those always, uh, uh, you know, will continue to improve that. How's your sustainability? Sustainability, we are leading that. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got all our EPDs, we've got our declares, and so we are, uh, we, we're, we're all, all or we're all on the website for the sustainability uh, program, so we're very strong with that. That's, that's good to know. That's mm -hmm. now everybody knows. Mm -hmm. So is there anything else you'd like me to know about Carboline that I didn't know to ask? Or fireproofing in general? Well, fireproofing in general, what, what we're starting to see is with some of these bigger plants and, and, and facilities that are going on, we are finding it that uh, you want a team of people like ours that have their they used to be an applicator or they used to be an estimator. They used to be somebody that came from the field from the application standpoint to where they'll bring the technical knowledge of what product was the right application for the right for the project. And so, and it's all driven by schedule. I mean, all the general contractors, by the time they get it, they have to make sure that, you know, they hit a schedule. And, and a lot of times the schedules ain't met or, you know, they, they have a hard time meeting that schedule because they don't put enough time frame into it. And so uh, I think getting us involved, in, and I think that's what we're starting to do is get more involved with these projects a lot earlier to where we can meet a schedule, we can beat a schedule. And, and that's where uh, our team has really done. So I guess the last thing I would like to ask of you, um, which I'm asking every rep I meet everywhere I go, is, um, get back out in the firms and do lots of fireproofing 101 sessions. Um, I'm not seeing as much of that and, and I'm with any product, not just fireproofing. Mm -hmm. And we have so many young professionals in our market now. And these, these two generations are so huge. And we're asking them to do a lot more a lot sooner than they ever have in our industry before. And the more they get up to speed, faster you know nobody used to let a 25 year old do the things they're letting them do now mm -hmm. uh, and so we really need all the reps to come out and re-educate all the firms don't talk to the senior guys they don't need you it's it's all of our young people that really need you so that's my favorite ask today no problem we will definitely uh our, our team has been doing that and and no matter if it's remotely or in person so right. uh they're required to do uh you know, six, seven of those uh, in each region. Okay. So we've got uh, six different regions. So that, so we we do do that. We continue to have, a, uh, it's an HSC uh, program that we have for health and safety and for fireproofing. We also have one for coatings. We also have one for flooring because last year we bought Dudic and uh, RPM and Carboline continue to buy more companies. And so, so we, we are looking for good good, uh, uh, you know, other companies that will, you know, continue to uh, increase uh, uh, our portfolio. 
Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for being here today. I learned so much in such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. People, go check out Carboline if you're not already familiar. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining me. No problem. The other thing is, is we also have, we have been doing podcasts for probably about six, seven years. And we have guys that have been doing that. So so, so, so look at the Carboline podcast also. That'd be great. I was not aware of that. So I'll Mm -hmm. go check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Bye. Hello, everybody, and here we are again back at a 23Con. I keep having to remind myself what their hashtag is. Um, and I'm joining me today is Lou Feinberg in advocacy sales at Dero. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Yeah. Dero Bikes. Um, how's, it, how's the show going, Lou? Welcome. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, great to be here, Sharice. Going well. It's been, uh, it's a lot of fun. This is a great crew uh, of people. They're just very interested in uh, things that are new and exciting and uh I've been in the advocacy world a long time, and our architects are always good friends to bike advocates. That's always been my experience. So this is uh, these are definitely uh, good good people here. I'm I'm super interested in this conversation. I actually already went and trolled your booth before this because I knew I would be interviewing you, um, and especially the city I'm in. So explain to me what Dero Bikes is all about. Uh, our company is uh, Dero Bike Racks, and we've been in the bike parking business for nearly 30 years. Um, and so it really started with uh, one of our founders who's no longer with the company, but he founded it in Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota because he noticed the lack of bike parking. And ever since then, in the mid nineties, it's just grown because biking has grown, especially commuting by bike. Um, and so our company has sort of risen to the occasion throughout the years. And because just like Technology in general, you don't really think of technology and bike racks as one, but as that demand increases, we have products that have helped meet the demand, help created, you know, help cre- create spaces where you can have more and more bike racks in tighter spaces. And also learn that, hey, you know, sometimes it's, you got to actually leave some space for all kinds of bikes because more and more people are able to bike and that's an exciting development. So we want to make sure when we're creating bike parking spaces that we're, co- we're accounting for everyone who's riding. So, and we, we chatted a little bit about this when I came by your booth, and I'm from Portland, Oregon. Great city. And it, love it. Um, but we've had some challenges. Mm-hmm. We're also a huge biking city. Right. Huge biking city. We have bike lanes everywhere and, and building more every day. Um, but we have some challenges, too. So tell me a little bit about your products, um, what you have and how they can help in, in a city that's struggling a little bit right now. Yeah, you bring up a really good point because people can be very gung-ho and excited about more and more bike infrastructure and bike lanes in, in cities. But it's really important to remember, you know, you can put all the bike infrastructure you want, bike lanes, bike paths, bike ways, but if there's nowhere to park your bike, you know, it's like creating all these spaces for people to get to like shopping centers and no car parking. So it's really vital to have car parking that meets that demand. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's really that's an important component of it that sometimes gets gets forgotten and and you know 
having both those sort of work in unison with one another. So outside of bike parking, let's talk about theft. Um, big issue right now. Yeah. You know, like a lot of people are, you know, they bike to work and then they go drag their, you know, bike up a bunch of stairs to their office or whatever because nobody wants to leave it outside. Um, what do you have to help when you want to park your bike outside and not drag it into your office or wherever you're going? Um, what kind of products do you have to help prevent that? Yeah. You know, actually, I'm, it's, it's, uh, it's good you ask that because we, we partnered just recently with a company out of Estonia and uh, Talent. And they have a product called Bike Keep, and we're their exclusive uh, partner here in the United States. And it is a smart bike rack, you know, talking about meeting the demands of the current age. Uh, this is actually a bike, a bike rack that's it's, it's, uh, Internet of Things. You know, you can, you can use it with an app. In fact, that's the preferred mode. And there's, the idea is to have stations of Bike Keep, high security bike racks that are self-locking. You can actually reserve them with the app. So when you get there, you know if you're riding a bike that you, you normally wouldn't park in the city, you know that a bike rack is waiting for you. You can reserve it up to an hour in advance. When you get to it, you, hit, you go to your app, you unlock it. It has a self-locking arm. You can lock the frame and the front tire with that. If, it, if it's a high theft area, we'd recommend that you bring another lock to, to either lock the back wheel to the frame, or you can take the back wheel off and lock it to the front wheel with the arm, the, the arm that locks it in two places. The nice thing about this bike rack, it's all automated. And when if someone tries to, to tamper with the bike rack, it actually lets off an alarm. And the alarm actually signals a, a uh, user interface who's ever managing the system. And there can also be text to law enforcement or who's ever guarding that system so they can be on it right away. You add, If you add cameras to that or other security measures, you have pretty much a theft-proof system. Um, and so that's a really nice opportunity for people who do have these 2,500, 3,000 and more dollar bikes. I was just, I'm actually living in Pittsburgh and I had to be downtown a couple of days in a row and I have an electric bike that I, I actually enjoy riding and it allows me to keep pace with traffic and commute properly in a sense. So, and that's one of the more dangerous things is a bike's list when you have a bunch of cars passing you. So when you're in a, an electric bike or a pedal assist bike, uh, you can feel uh, like you're going with the flow of traffic at a, at a more comfortable pace and not as many people are passing you. And I was using it to get downtown. I was like, but where am I going to park? Because I don't want to park this bike just anywhere. Right. And so this is a really good solution for those types of situations. It's, it's like your mind reader. Because as you were telling me about this, you know, smart bike rack, which I think is fantastic, by the way, especially, you know, being in Portland. And yeah. You don't know how fantastic I think that is. I was thinking, well, what about electric bikes? Because I, I have a, a number of friends that have purchased electric bikes now, and they're not cheap. No, they're not, they're not cheap. cheap at all. And, I'm, and then you start telling me you can lock up your electric bike. Yeah, and charge it. We now have charging oh. racks and also the, uh, the smart bike rack, the bike key that I'm telling you about has a charging option as well. Wow. Yeah. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, uh, the electric bike market is uh, stronger right now. It has grown more than the electric car market. More and more people have them, so there has to be charging, at least some charging opportunities. So, I'm, you know, being a spec writer, I write the specs for buildings. I'm, I'm a little surprised. I mean, I'm more in the enclosure now, but I still do things on the exterior. I'm a little surprised I haven't heard of this. Um, what, what would you like spec writers or architects to know about your, your products? What could we be doing to have more of these kinds of bike racks out there for people? Because I know I wish these were all over. 
the city of Portland? Uh, well, you know what? Can I broaden that question? Can I take it back just a little further? Absolutely. Because as a spec writers, I think a couple things that I run into that I think are, are important to point out. Um, you have to give, when you're, when you're developing or designing a bike room and you're laying out a bike room, and even the bike keep that we talked about in short-term or long-term bike parking. When we talk about short-term and long-term bike parking, we're really, if we're, we're designing a space for bikes that'll be there for less than two hours, that's considered short-term bike parking. When we're going beyond two hours, we think of that in terms of long-term bike parking. So bike rooms, bike stations, those are really long-term scenarios. And the biggest challenge I see with those is people wanting to fit way too many bikes in a space okay. and not giving enough space for uh, people who are riding larger electric bikes or trikes or uh, cargo bikes, which is really common in Portland, right. you have to have some of the area that people with these large bikes and strangely shaped bikes can maneuver. And, you know, fortunately, this development has allowed people who may have had accessibility issues now to ride bicycles that sort of help meet, help them meet that challenge. And they they need more space to maneuver. So we don't have a bike rack designed for that. What we need to create for folks in those situations is more space. So when we're, when we're doing specs, we have to really, really consider that and think about that. It's not just about jamming as many bikes in the space as we want, but for people to move freely through the space and feel comfortable there, that's really, that's really valuable. That's great advice. I, I don't know if I, I ever, it's always about, okay, how many bikes? And, and I don't know that I've ever really thought about movement. I mean, I don't design the rooms, but thought about movement in the space and making sure that that's appropriate. Is there anything else you'd really like us to know about Dero before? Yeah, uh, well, the other thing is, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is bicycle maintenance stations, which is a really popular product. People love it. I mean, if you're out on the trail or, you know, going to a grocery store, we see a lot of, uh, we have a lot of fans of our bicycle maintenance stations and air pump kits. They come together. And so people really love them because, you know, if you're in a pinch and suddenly you don't have an air pump or there's a tool there, I get a lot of people coming back to me and saying, boy, I love seeing this thing out there in the field. I just want to emphasize how important it is to uh, make sure that these are looked after, maintained. You can't just put something in the field and hope that, uh, oh, it'll take care of itself. Since right. the public's interacting with this, it's really valuable to keep, keep up after them, have service plans, and uh, make sure who's ever, you know, uh, utilizing them, that there's ambassadors for them and making sure they're, they're up kept pretty well. Good advice. I learned a lot today. Oh, good. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been an awesome conversation. I'm definitely going back to my office and saying, hey, you guys need to know about this. Uh, I appreciate that. Sharice, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, you too. Hello, you are listening to Spaces Podcast, live from A23, uh, AIA's architecture con uh, conference, and we are in San Francisco this year, um, get a chance to record live from the expo floor. Uh, we partnered with RCAT uh, this year. We've done it a couple of times now, but uh, we partnered again with them this year. So we're at the RCAT booth, sitting under the big red A. 
Uh, you cannot miss it if you're on the expo floor. Uh, today I have Patrick Chopson with me uh, from Cove Tool, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this, Patrick. Um, I know you guys have a lot of things in the news going on right now, so we'll get to that in a second. But thank you for joining me, first off. Yeah, super pleasure to be here and just talking with you. Uh, it's a very active expo, so I'm, I'm super happy we were, we were able to connect, yeah. Yeah, so first, how we're, uh, well, let's let's talk about Code Tool first. Tell, us, tell, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Code Tool and, um, and what the product is. Yeah, so Code Tool is a web-based software for doing all your carbon, energy, daylight, cost analysis for architects and engineers. And then it's also a platform for uh, manufacturers to be able to run simulations inside their website to do complex trade-offs uh, so they can actually, you know, if you're an architect or engineer, you can also make a decision about our product as well. Yeah, very cool. So how, um, how have you, you guys are set up here on the floor uh, this year. How have you been received? How are, how's it going for this week? Yeah, it's tremendous excitement, I think, because, you know, we've been working since 2017 to build our brand and get to know people and, you know, architecture is very much a handshaky type relationship building <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> type of thing. So um, I feel like just meeting people in person is like the key yeah. to being able to like move the needle when it comes to climate action or using some type of data to drive design. You really have to kind of help people feel like, hey, these guys got me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, so coming into the convention, I think it's probably... I want to say like a week ago that I saw this on LinkedIn that uh, you guys had a pretty big announcement. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So we've been working with YKKAP, and they're the first um, manufacturer of aluminum uh, facade elements to actually have our simulations embedded into their website. So you can do a full embodied carbon model, energy, and you know, energy cost simulation that runs on our servers and then comes back to you inside their website. So you don't have to go to GoTool. You can actually see their products you know, doing little sliders and yeah. seeing which what things meet your project criteria. So that's pretty cool. Wow. So um, so t talk a little bit more about that. So give me uh, sort of a case study or, or snapshot of what that experience is like. Are you looking at a specific uh, configuration of a facade or, or how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So typically like for an aluminum framing system, there's like uh, you have like the windows, which is maybe like you know, Vericon or something like that is like the person supplying the glass, but you're trying to figure out for the, for like the frame, what the dimension is, what the U value is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times like manufacturers like YKKAP, they have like a lot of products. Uh, they have a lot of new products and those new products are usually high performance, lower carbon, more energy performative. But the problem is, is that people still have old specs and they've written them one way and they forget to rerun the simulations again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they just keep doing what they did in the last project. And so for many manufacturers to get these new low carbon products out there in the marketplace, they need to be able to demonstrate how they work mm. or how they're better. Yeah. And so like that's their, so really for them, uh, if you're, they want, what they want to show is that if you use their premium product, which is low energy, low carbon, that you'll actually be able to go for maybe a, a slightly lesser spec on the glass, mm -hmm. uh, which then makes the overall assembly uh, of your window mm -hmm. system cheaper. Got it. So that, um, so you, for them or for a client, I guess you're actually, you're getting actual numbers yeah. and you can see the difference clearly rather than, um, sort of just 
marketing numbers that are out of, out of, right. out of thin air. Because <laughs> a lot of times you just have, if you're an architect, I know as an architect myself, finding product specification information is so crazy. I mean, some you'll, there's good databases out there, but then in the day you're still kind of hunting around PDFs on a manufacturer's website. Mm -hmm. That can be like so challenging. Yeah. And so that that's what we're trying to help people say like, hey, you don't have to go hire like 10 consultants to figure out this question. Mm -hmm. This manufacturer can provide you all that, you know, for your specific project, for the square footage, the type of building it is, where it's at. Yeah. Here's the actual right product for you. And that's like really exciting. So I think you said that they're the first person, uh, first company to, to do this. So it sounds like you have plans or there's there's opportunity to grow in more companies. Yes, yeah, so we, we have other categories of products. Uh, anything that can be simulated in a building, we can simulate it. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we have uh, other manufacturers that do things like uh, Juno, for example, they do like these uh, panels. They just raised a bunch of money to make these reusable panels. Uh, we have folks like, um, you know, we, we've done store Enzo does like wood, wood panel products for like CLT, things like that. So there's all these different ways that you could, you could do something, but they're the first aluminum uh, frame system uh, manufacturer. So like people like, uh, you know, like you think about like all the different major brands that are out there, they're all uh, <laughs> thinking now, oh man, we should have some simulation inside our shop, our our website now too. So it's kind of leading to like that change that you were looking for using economics to drive climate action. So Patrick, as, as an architect uh, at the intersection of technology and architecture, um, where you, because you guys, because you've created this, um, your company's created this, this product, you are leading the charge. You're on the front lines of this conversation about sustainability. Um, where do you see that we are? Because it's a big conversation for uh, a big topic for us in the industry. Um, you know, as of the last few years, it's kind of really ramped up to a whole new level. But where do you see our profession at or the larger AEC industry um, kind of on, on where we're at with sustainability? Oh, yeah. So, like, because we talk to not just architects and engineers, manufacturers we also talk to finance people developers you know what we're seeing right now is financial risk equals climate risk so when you see when now that that is 100 percent associated in the minds of you, know, you think about like the 2008 financial crisis subprime mortgages whatnot who came out of that looking good you know goldman sachs people yeah. like that yeah the big so they knew it was coming yeah and they got out and they were ready to take advantage of it the same thing's happening now with climate change all your big financial institutions already know that it's happening, like JP Morgan, whatever. They, they're already shifting assets, uh, using risk models that take into effect. Um, you know, you see like insurance people are pulling out of Florida and California. now California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the, money, the money knows what's happening, the big money. And so they're pushing down now towards the developer. And those developers are now feeling the heat of to deliver a low carbon project because there's a, diff there's a difference in the percentage of your loan based on how how low a carbon your project is for many people. So like, you know, you kind of got your smaller developers who are like, let's say you, you do like, 
one apartment building per year or like five or six you're a smaller developer you'll be like ah oh, that climate change thing i don't know about all that yeah but then when you go to try to get insurance you're like oh no you yeah. know i can't get insurance for my project yeah <laughs> so like you're starting to see that like everyone's waking up from the top down mm -hmm. and so you know i would say like over the last since i started in 2013 mm -hmm. working on climate change type mm -hmm. things um it took a long time like we've been punching up yeah. for a long time as architects or, or people who care about this thing now it's coming from the top and it's just being you're being it's a hurricane force pulling you ahead we also got the inflation reduction act that has transformative regulations around buildings everywhere like from the codes to like the federal um buy american buy low carbon mm -hmm. which then triggered a trade war basically with the european union mm. where they adopted this thing called cbam which is the carbon border adjustment mechanism which is basically a tariff yeah. against like hot carbon materials but basically imports from america so that so now everyone is like really you know having to figure this out and so manufacturers are freaking out yeah. you know and, th and that kind of translates to architects waking up that it's not just a small percentage of projects now that are that have this sustainability thing it's like oh carbon which is measurable it's real yeah it's not a you can't fudge it it has to be measured yeah <laughs> no do you get any sense of kind of public perception of climate change? Um, and, and this was recently in the news um, off of uh, the uh, old governor, uh, Schwarzenegger. I don't know if you saw when he was talking about how um, we shouldn't say climate change because no one understands that. Yeah. He was, I, I didn't really agree with that it, we should say pollution because everybody knows what pollution is and that yeah. hasn't changed anything. Yeah. But um, are you getting any sense of like a public, be some people beyond finance and yeah. our industries? I think, you know, people's perception, it, like the majority of Americans, I think, was it now like 69% of Americans believe that climate change is real, but a very small percentage of them feel like they can do anything about it. Mm. Whereas like architects and engineers, you know, that we're, con we're like 0.003% of the global population, but we're controlling 40% of the yeah. carbon. <laughs> so it's like, we can do something about it. We're in a position to make the change, yeah. but we can't make that change unless finance has decided that that change is worth paying for. Mm. Sign the finance has decided it's worth paying for now. Yeah. So now it's gonna happen. Um, and that's why like I recently became a dad, but I was kind of waiting to see Interesting. where things were gonna go. What's the long-term trend look like before I wanna become a dad? Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of like, for me, the thing was when I saw you know, some of the trends, I'm like, okay, things are going to happen. Yeah. Stuff's going to change. Yeah. Where, where do you get that kind of sense? Is it just from conversations or yeah. are you seeing? I, th I think it's when you start reading or talk, actually it's not really reading. It's really actually having conversations. <laughs> it's really having conversations with um, individuals who are in the position to know, like, okay. for example, last year I went to a climate conference in Copenhagen, talked to the head of ESG for Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm and had that conversation with them and was like, okay, oh, that's what you're doing? Yeah. Oh, okay, so this is actually happening. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> you well, know. that's that's promising. Yeah. I, I was uh, I was hoping you would give me good news, yeah. uh, and, and I think that is good news. Um, anything else you wanna share about um, Cove Tool? What's, what's next, what do you guys have coming up? Yeah, I think the, the future is gonna be us just simplifying our simulations to be easier to use for everyone. Because, you know, like you can build a lot of, we've built a lot of stuff for the last few years trying to like make things, complex things easy. Yeah. I think the next step is to go beyond a five button process to like 
one button. You yeah. know, like that's really what, where it has to be. It has to be so stupidly simple that like you just press a button and you get the answer. And I think AI and the rise of that and, or incorporating that to our product like everyone's doing right now is just going to continue to make it easier to query the software and say, hey, I'm trying to do this project and here's what I'm trying to do. And I don't know really the right question to ask. Yeah, That's usually the problem that most people have is they don't know what question to ask even. So if you can incorporate some kind of, uh, you know, like chat GPT is what we're incorporating to our product, but that kind of large language model can help you ask questions in the right way. Like say, I want to do X, but I don't know how to ask this question or what simulations I need to run or what I need to do. Uh, being able to get that information to people about what they need to do and educating them, you know, in the privacy of their own <laughs> workstation is like where we're trying to get to. Fantastic. So how can people find out more? Yeah, just go to cove.tools. Um, it's a, our name is also our web address. So uh, the <laughs> tools with an S on the end. Yeah, okay. yeah. And that helps people kind of like, you know, they can find all the resources. There's videos, there's training. But most importantly, probably talking to someone yeah. is like from our team is really what you need. Because right now, what we see is that as long as there's only 5% of people in a firm who are learning how to do some kind of like energy modeling or whatnot, it'll, you'll never see that change management of institutional change happen where you start making the money okay. from you know being a more informed designer so it has to cross anything in life with technology has to cross about 10 percent before you start to see everyone doing it and so that's where we need to get to in most firms so that's what we're working on but that and for many design firms that takes time or if you're a small firm of like five people if only one guy knows how to do it it can be a problem for creating like that oh we're all thinking about the problem in a certain way so. Yeah, and I think your tool is lowering that threshold, yeah. uh, making it a lot simpler. <laughs> and, and we've just been trying to integrate. So, you know, see if you look at some of the companies that have been here at the Expo, there's a lot of companies that are using our, our daylight simulations inside their software. So we have an API. So that kind of idea of sharing, you know, being able to create interoperability between all the different platforms is something that we're really passionate about. We feel like that also continues to lower that barrier of entry to folks. So that's cool. <laughs> Thank you so much, Patrick. Yeah, uh, awesome. Really good chatting with you. Um, enjoy the last day, I think it is, yeah. uh, of the conference. And good luck with everything. No, this has been a pleasure. It's so good to talk to you. Likewise. Nice. Another great day of conversations. Listening to these took me back. It was such a fantastic week. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed these conversations as much as I did. If you want to find out more about the products discussed in this episode, visit rcat.com.